I can tell you I'm, I'm pretty nervous, actually. Oh, you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Well, well I, I've been a longtime fan of your playing, and I collect your records and uh, your leader records and the ones as a sideman. And uh, I've been uh, heavily influenced by your playing. And I think everybody who is serious about harmony and, and our music should listening to you and will listen to you at some point uh, and uh, will come out of it as a changed man or woman and uh, at least that's that's what happened to me you know thank you now i'm really nervous <laughs> <laughs> so bill i'm i'm really interested in um, uh, um, your concept of handling harmony uh, in either your own tunes in your free improvisations, uh, but also in, in standards. Um, yeah. I, I'm wondering what happens in your mind or what happened in your mind when you first discovered it. I'm sure you, it's very internal for you. Uh, but but um, how you go about when you see a harmony that's supposed to be there at some point, but right. your, your mind or your inspiration or your whatever, um, your inner child goes like, no, I'm going to do this now. You know, I'm, I'm wondering what yeah, is rebellion. It's simple, <laughs> childlike rebellion. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, I can remember the kind of one of the things that really opened my ears up uh, to guys was uh, Charles Ives, which I discovered in uh, college. The year I went to college, I went to North Texas State for a year. And there's a lot of record collections and whatnot. And and uh, people records. Remember those <laughs> those silly old things. I get most of the people I know that I teach at college, they don't even have a CD player. Yeah. There isn't even a, there isn't even a place to, in a, in a laptop to even put it in. Yeah. It's Dave, Liebman, they Dave no... Liebman said to me, they've locked us out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what it is. He's like, I have no reference points anymore. Anyway, yeah. I, uh, I, but I digress. Mm. Um, when I was like 17 or 18, I, I first heard uh, a, a French guy named Henri Dittu. Oh yeah. And, uh, yeah. And I'm a big fan. And, yeah. um, And I heard was listening to the cello concerto that was given mm -hmm. to me by a, a drummer in Minneapolis, uh, Mark Brin. And he said, here, you should check this out, you know. And uh, Okay, and I took it home. It also was an LP. It had uh, the Ludislavsky on it, mm -hmm. uh, and which I like, but not as much. The detail was the yeah. one I really glommed onto immediately. Uh, the the Ludislavsky is a little more abstract and... But, you know, Ditti is so, you know, the harmony is so modern and subtly modern, yeah. and yet he's so melodic, you know, there's no, mm -hmm. there's never a interruption of the flow, you know, which is a big thing for me. I I don't like it when you can hear the math, right. you know, anytime yeah. you can, you know, it, it, there is math, there's always tons of math with music, but the key is to hide it. You don't want to see the mechanisms, you know, a, a Ferrari has a million little mathematical parts moving, but all you see is this beautiful car right. that goes 140 miles an hour. You know, that's what you want to have it hidden in that beauty, you know, and Ditti is really particularly great at that, I think. And, yeah. and so I listened to that and I remember I was actually in Europe for the first time uh, with my folks. I think I was 18 or 19 and I was listening to this thing and I just I had it on a Walkman and I would play a couple of sections and I just played them over and over and over. And that was, I remember that was like a portal into like, okay, what if you could do that kind of thing with, you know, with jazz? Because mm -hmm. I mean, not many guys were doing that. I mean, it was, I mean, it's, jazz can be very, uh, like any other music, it can be very, uh, you know, uh, elitist. Uh, yes, I suppose. But I was thinking more like, subject to the to all the same 
you know, uh, group think mm -hmm. that anything else is uh, that can be. I remember years ago playing a recording session and I started uh, just warming up. I was just, I'd sit down at the piano and we were at the big studio in the old Columbia Studios in New York. And, oh. and I started playing some Bach. And one of the guys on the session actually turned to me and in total seriousness, like, hey man, we don't play classical music on it. You don't, you know, Whoa. like he didn't like that. He didn't like that. That was, you know, the kind of, you know, and I that's was like, weird. okay, so that's what that is. That's that thing is that, you know, uh, so I thought, what if you could do that? What if somehow you could, you know, take, uh, you know, like, okay, I can show you actually, and you're not going to be able to see me here over the piano, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, like, like, you know, the standard, like this kind of a thing, you know, that kind of a sound. Yeah. You know, when you, when you come to, you know, like, I don't know, like, uh, you know. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff is, is just stuff that came from a little section of that chord. I mean, for me, that was a totally new thing. The, that uh, you know B over C, and then of course when you I got the score to it. When I got back a little later, I got the score to it, and I started looking at it because some of that stuff is kind of impenetrable to me. I you can't he, I can't hear all of the, you know the layers going on there. I mean you, I can hear kind of what they're doing. I understand, but to get the flavors just right, you know there's there's a big difference. The way you know how you voice something is to whether it rings or not. You know it's kind of the piano has its own logic. You know kind of the way. I don't understand it, but there's, I mean, I kind of know how to do it, but I don't know why it does it, you know, like the mathematics of, you know, like tuning and fifths and, you know, the overtones and all that. But there are certain ways you can make it ring that ring better than other ways of voicing it. And right. it's just a, for me, it was just a process of experimentation, just kind of like cataloging sound, you know, just that sound and it works that way. It doesn't work that way. It works better this way, you know, if you get the sixth and the tenths and you know, there's ways to voice it that make it better. I mean, you know all this, so I'm not preaching to the choir, but, but, uh, you can, you know, you can do that and, and make it sound kind of bring that 20th century sound, you know, classical sound to the jazz. And I know there's still a lot of people who consider that kind of sacrilege, I guess, but <laughs> I don't know. It's just what I liked. I like the sound of that. I've always liked those kind of sounds, and so I just was, at one level anyway, it's pretty simple, just effort to play what you love, you know, just play sounds yeah. that you love and uh, fit them into the music. And and then you asked about, like, how to move them around, like, where to put them and how to move them. It's just, I, what I've tried to do is make every chord sound inevitable, and that's from Bach. That's all, you know, that attitude, that way, you know, Bach is so elegant. Everything that Bach did is so, is just, you know, he'll take you down the primrose path and and drop you off in a totally different spot, and but yet it still sounds like one. Yeah, it's very strange his ability to do that, and and you, you don't realize that he's taking you around the block, you know, to some other place. But it mm. feels so natural. He's so elegant at it. I've been listening to Jeswaldo, and that you know, it, oh, yeah. now he's not that out, but but it but in Jeswaldo's time, I mean, you know, he did all these abrupt shifts. You know, he was the opposite yeah. of Bach. Well, a hundred years earlier, I believe. Yeah, hundred years. I yeah, think he would just like you know stab you harmonically and tell her here it's there you know <laughs> whereas whereas uh bach is like no 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 come around this way and whatever and you know he wouldn't and, also uh, make... he wouldn't only stab harmonically 
you know? <laughs> well, he, yeah, I guess Giswaldo had a little thing for that, didn't he? Yeah. That's another story. Yeah. I forgot about that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so so I think there's a way to do that, you know, and make it elegant so that even though it sounds out, you know, that's one of the things I don't like when I hear some, you know, even some people's writing where it sounds like there, there are all these cool chords, but but there's no line in them, you know, so there's no, mm. you want to make everything sound inevitable, like, oh yeah, and that leads to that, and of course, it's sure, like yeah. chess, you know, it's kind of like a chess game, that goes to there, and then you slowly surround the king, and you get to this place, you know, mm. and, and and harmony can do that, and I think, you know, when you have just a bunch of cool chords, like, I like this chord, and I like this chord, yeah. and I like this chord, but they don't reference one to another, you know, it's like, it's like station to station baseball, it's just, you know, you just go from this base to this base, there's no interaction, and no master plan to homogenic it. yeah right exactly yeah so, so that's kind of what i was tr been trying to do is still trying to do is like just glue it together in a way that makes it sound inevitable in a way so it's like okay that goes to there and that goes to there right you know? with some players I, it sounds like they have like three chords that are more out than the other ones and they use them from time to time but then you always like are thrown off because you're like whoa where does that come from and why now you exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's random. It's almost like they just couldn't think of anything else to put there. And so they put like one of their oddest things, right. you know, that they could, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound, you know, like an ass, but it just, it, it sounds immediately obvious. It's like, no, no, that, you know, like you say, it doesn't, there isn't a line. You got to have the line, you know, the melodic mm -hmm. line, the harmonic line, or the rhythm, rhythmic line, you know, it, it's important that those things all glue together to me anyways, in a, in a smooth and, elegant way otherwise it's even playing free you know you mentioned earlier about playing free and it's the same thing that's that's the kind of free music that i don't get with either it's just like the the wild you know just anything goes i mean you know free music has hundreds of rules none of them are written down <laughs> but there's lots of them you know and i think uh one of them is like being brief and be gone you know like the more dense you can make free improvisation you know like a, you know it has to have some I mean, you're doing it on the fly, hopefully, three or four guys doing it together, but it's, or it can be solo, I guess, but to make them uh, dense and, and, and concise, like a short story, yeah. you know, where there's a storyline to it and it, it starts somewhere and it goes somewhere, is really important in the music. And I think when that's lost, it's like, you know, as a listener, especially if you're not a, uh, you know, a, a jazz musician, you know, I think it's important too, you know, that to, to play for you know, like you're playing for your mom, you know, yeah. like for people who, who may not know, you know, they just want to come and be moved by something or to be, you know, be involved in something and they don't know all this stuff, you know, and I think if you start from a place of what well, you need to know all this stuff to get me or to get what's going on, it's like, you know, what's the point? Yeah. But I guess also <laughs> like uh, for free music, you have to have knowledge about form and about rhythm. You, you want to hear good form and you want to hear exactly. good rhythm and good, in a way also good harmony and melody. Uh, it can be abstract, but uh, it's not like that all of that goes out of the window once you're playing free. Like the greatest free right. players, they knew about form and they will of let course. you know about form when they play, you know, and clarity of course, of course. And, and great intent, you know, and motif. And working yeah. one idea. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, instead of like, oh, I got 20 ideas. I got here's all me. Just like kind of like, Bleh, you know, yeah. no, no, no. It's, you know, like that's one of the things I love about Hank Jones. I mean, he didn't do it. I don't think anyways that I've heard a lot of free playing. But uh, but he was such a master at like, you know, he, I, every time I hear Hank Jones play, it was always like 
just a guy just sitting telling stories. You know, there was no hurried nature to it. There was no agenda. There was no, yeah. he didn't care if the story actually even was finished at some yeah. point, but there was always just simple storytelling. It's such a, I don't know, in my opinion, in some ways a lost art. And I think in the jazz world, the further they get away from that, you know, the more it becomes the cutting, bleeding edges, the more it becomes something that my mom, for instance, can't relate to. It's like, you know, what is this? You know, you got to have that line. You got to have the story. You got to have something emotional that, you know. Yeah. You know, like Johnny Hodges, man. When you hear Johnny yeah. Hodges play Blood Count, come yeah. on. Yeah. I mean, that's a thing. It's a pure melody and emotion. And I don't know. It's true. That's a little bit being lost in the music, as far if you ask me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all become about every recording is like a doctoral thesis now. <laughs> so it, what it is. is like here's all the shit that I learned the last three years, and here it is. Mm. You know, here it all is, and laid out with my bibliography, and everything is perfect. Everything is perfect. And yet, you know, when's the last time, like, you know, like, how often do you hear a recording where it's like Miles 60s recordings? It's just, they're just flying by the seat of their pants and it's beautiful and there's mistakes and there's yeah. dead ends. And Tony speeds up some of the time and it's, you know, it's not perfect. And yeah. yet it's totally perfect because yeah. it's coming from this place of it's life. storytelling and exactly. Yeah. What was the last thing, you know, <laughs> of newer releases that you heard that touched you like that or similar to that? In that direction, I'll tell you what I really loved. Glow, not to, uh, well, not to. Uh, I'm not kidding. It's a beautiful. That's a beautiful recording. Wow. Um, I would say. Uh, let me see. Of, I, I, you know, I saw a live concert of Muhal uh, Richard Abrams mm. with, uh, with the trombone player. Uh, ugh, I'm terrible with names. Terrible with names. Um, but anyways, it was Roscoe Mitchell. That group. I saw him at Middleheim. We actually played before them, uh-huh. and I was just completely, completely blown away. I mean, I'm a cynical old fucker, so, <laughs> sorry for, so I'm not, you know, very often just completely, like, kind of speechless after a concert. Mm. And uh, I was pretty speechless. I was just, I came up to him. I was like, uh, uh, you know, wow, amazing. It was yeah. amazing. It was completely free. And they just, they built these shapes and they did it together. And it just, it was just like they were building a freaking pyramid. It was incredible. <laughs> it was amazing. It was one of the more amazing concerts I've ever seen wow. live. That's Now I want to hear this. Yeah, I don't, uh, it was, it was Middleheim about uh, four years ago. I don't know if it was recorded or anything else. I, it's almost one of those concerts that's so beautifully in my brain that I don't kind of want to hear it again. You know what I mean? Is yeah. that weird? Or, no, no. I, I like, totally I get that. Yeah. You know, it's like, it will never give me, I don't think, that same feeling. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Exactly That's a beautiful thing, right? Yeah, just standing on the side, you could feel the whole place just lifted about three inches off the ground. It was amazing. Mm. Yeah, cool. it was pretty great. I hadn't, I hadn't felt like that about a group live in a while. I was really stunned. Yeah. It was amazing. Wow. And, Muhal, the whole his whole thing is I, I kind of don't have as many reference points for that. It's not something I don't go that way well or that often. That that what he does, and I'm not that very good at it. And to watch that happen, he just does it so effortlessly. I was like, oh my goodness, you know, mm. a very uh, prodigious technique uh, in a kind of a sneaky and shocking way. I don't know. It was it was something. I really I can feel exactly the way it was the way I felt then. I can. One of those, imp- you know, imprints on your 
yeah soul or something that you know can you tell me about other concert memories that touch you like that that really stay with you and and uh, keep keep on feeding you yeah i remember having them you know as far as like more of a sentimental you know attraction that i've always had to the music you know i just i love the gooey old you know the old johnny hodges paul gonzalez zoot sims you know that that whole line of saxophone players and just the you know the heart on your sleeve kind of i can never get enough of that i just love that you know like i said before it's something that you don't hear that much anymore mm -hmm. you know i mean the guys that play now are so insanely better i mean in a it, technically in a You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, they do things that the guy who invented the saxophone couldn't possibly have imagined. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. And, and yet, uh, you know, to listen again, like to, you know, Johnny Hodges play Blood Count or to hear, you know, those old, you know, where they go, boo doo boo boo foo Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. all the area. And they're so unabashed about it. There's no, you know, there's no self-conscious thing about it. It's just, it's what they did, you know. Well, anyways, in that line, when I was about 17 or 18, I saw Miles Davis play at uh, the, where was that? It was in Minneapolis. I think it was at the Orpheum Theater. And he had his, you know, his new, you know, it was an electronic thing. It was around, I guess, 2-2 or, you know, it was around that time. Okay. And so they're doing the music from that. And, you know, he's, you know, kind of pacing the stage and, you know, kind of doing his, you know, kind of very minimalist thing that he was doing. And it was great. I mean, I, I love 2-2. I think that's a really Yeah. fun recording i mean it's maybe not i mean it's not my favorite miles for sure but it's but it's interesting it's cool to me there's some nice harmonic things going on and it's yeah. it's got there's a there is a point to it it's not just let's just elect you know synthesizer out and see what happens it's it's nice it's got a thing to it anyway so he's doing all this music and i'm sitting there and of course it's miles davis and i'm you know a complete uh almost like you know a bobby socks or one of the you know like a fan of the beatles you know one of those young schoolgirls. you know i just practically screaming i just was so such a fan yeah what i'm trying to say and all of a sudden in the middle of this there's like a little space and he starts playing boo 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 doo doo boo doo 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 no boo doo 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 i'm started crying i was like it was a thing i will never forget he played about boo doo boo doo doo and then he went and then like it went away and it was gone oh. and i was like oh my god wow I seriously I, i you know it was the thing it was like a it was like a it was like a ghost floating in a room and like floating around the stage i can't even describe how i felt amazing uh, I, oh that concert stuck with me that what was it less than 30 seconds mm -hmm. uh I mean, always, to be honest, the rest of the concert, I couldn't recite any chapter and verse of any other rest of the concert, but that moment yeah. I will remember for the rest of my life. Did he play that over Jean-Pierre? See, I don't even remember what the tune was playing. I just remember like all okay. of a sudden, it's like this bird flew in the room, like this big, gorgeous, yeah. you know, just the plumage and it just flew around and was like, check this out and then left and just gone as quick wow. as it came. It went and that was it. Wow. And I realized at the heart of a lot of Miles stuff, you know, when you listen to the ballads, especially, there's so much, not cheap sentimentality, but very sentimental. Mm. He was, this was a guy who was very, uh, no can, because there's can no be, way to play those ballads. Yeah. And nobody can be that hard, full, you know, 100%, you know, it's usually also a, a protection, right? For, oh, of course, of you know, of course, yeah. I, I'm sure he, he had some vulnerability uh, inside of him and you can hear, I'm, I totally agree. You can hear that. 
especially in oh, his ballad yeah. playing. Yeah. Yeah, the ballad playing. You know, and I, well, I read one somewhere, and I don't remember who said it or what. It was like in a downbeat somewhere. They're interviewing some old dude. Or, I don't remember who it was, uh, but he mentioned something about Miles telling him that he, you know, that he got a lot of his most of his phrasing, everything. Look, it's not a new idea, actually. See, not singers. Talking. It was well, Sinatra, yeah, but that, but and singers in general, just you know, yeah. I mean, most of what a horn player tries to do, you know, the piano's too precise. It's mm. unfortunate that, you know, I've always loved. I wish you could have a piano that was like a, like a clavichord, you know, where you mm -hmm. can push the note and you can bend stuff and get a little bit of a bend, you yeah. know. You'll even see Jarrett. You'll see his fingers sometimes. You can see him pushing into it. And he, he wants to. Yeah. I mean, you can't. You yeah. know, I mean, I don't think it really affects anything in the end. It's in his mind, but it's yeah. important. You know, a important little thing in his mind, I think, to feel like he can do that. He can't, but he, but he'd like to. <laughs> you know. Well, in in a, in a way, it transcends into the music. Although we, it's not possible physically, we hear something that there's something up with that particular note. Something's up. You know, it's hard sure, to. Sure, sure. Yeah, exactly. That's almost like a yeah, like just a, like just a fragrance. You know. I think Daniel Barenboim also talked about having a crescendo between one note and the others, you know, <laughs> uh, having a crescendo like going up, although you can also push only push that button and then push that button, you know, but right. if you have it in your mind, you can somehow, in a way, magically squeeze it out there if you maybe Daniel Barenboim. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's the thing too, you know, you talk about, you know, that squeezing buttons like that. And it is true. I mean, the piano, is a mechanical object and in fact has a very uh, kind of obtuse, you know, way of hitting the, you know, I mean, before when you do this to the hammer going like this, there's a whole lot of, you know, inner working, inner locking, you know, mechanisms that are making this happen, you know, and they all have to be perfectly balanced. I mean, even to the point where, you know, as a tuner, when you spin the, the hammer, you know, on a, on a pin, it has to, when you go like this a certain way, it's supposed to turn a certain amount of times. And if it's, not enough it's too tight and if it's too many it's, i mean it's very picky stuff here yeah you know the whole piano down like that and then you you think of it being so mechanical like that and it you know you just and yet if you had 10 piano players sit at the same piano 10 piano players who you know kind of have their own thing you would hear 10 totally different sounds how is that possible it's amazing yeah it is i mean it's yeah. amazing that the piano can transmit that so I think you're exactly right. You know the idea that you know having that nuance, something that maybe you can't even, you know, I mean you can't obviously tell it. You can't say no, it's that, but you can kind of you feel it. This the the sum total of someone's soul being poured into the instrument somehow is translated through the wood and metal and a bunch of hammers. That if you flick this and it goes six times, it's not right. And if you do this five times, it is right. You know what I mean? It's just out to me. I've never been able to get my head around that how about that uh uh what's the guy who puts all the treatments in the piano he's so great benoit delbeck oh yeah oh man amazing guy yeah love that yeah i mm. heard a couple of his recordings like oh man mm -hmm. this guy is killing yeah yeah it's true yeah. it's a lot still, still a lot to be found in there lots to be found yeah. i agree when we talk about the mechanics of the piano, the actual touch, how do you get your sound out of the piano? What uh, is it uh, a conscious thing that you spend a lot of time on uh, trying to get that beautiful sound that you have? Uh, oh, uh, thank you. It, to me, it's like, 
massaging skin, you know, that's what I tell my students too. It's like, you know, you, for me, it helps if I keep my fingers on the keys as much as possible. Yeah, it's difficult for me when I take my hands off the piano a lot. You lose the connection. I can't. I see. To me, I do. And yeah. I, but I, you know, I've heard some amazing classical players and stuff, and they lift up. I mean, it used to be I thought that any of the dudes that kind of did all the flourishing stuff was not, you know, didn't really work. But now I've kind of seen some exceptions to that. You know, people who, and of course, Gould had a whole thing of his own to it. There, you know, but he kept his hands on the on the keyboard a lot, you yeah. know, to get, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like massaging skin. So it's more like a lot of finger strength and not much arm strength. I don't, I don't rely on, I know there's a whole Russian thing where you're, you know, you drop your hands and there's a whole flow from your shoulders. And I think I've never spent, I've tried to do that one time, tried to think about it. Like, how does that work? But to me, it's just, it's, it's most of what, you know, I feel like maybe it's not true, but what I perceive anyways, is most of, the sound that I get from the piano is from the wrist down. Oh, it's okay. just a lot. It's a lot of just, you know, my arms aren't that strong and everything, but my hands are really like, you know, I know Mark Copeland, when he had hand troubles, he squeezed a tennis ball a lot. It's a way to uh, alleviate uh, carpal tunnel and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the repetitive thing is that you can sit and squeeze tennis balls and stuff like that. I, I think Old tennis, tennis balls, balls right? <laughs> Because yeah, the right. new ones, so can... they're pretty hard to squeeze. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. You play tennis? I played tennis, yeah, when I was a Yeah, me kid. too. I used to... Until yeah, it, get, it got more serious with the piano, I oh, somehow well. stopped then, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can only give yourself up to so much stuff yeah. when you, if you want to get serious about it. I think But Jared the... did this, right, to squeeze his hand to, because he had tiny hands, he said. Uh, he, he did this to when he was in school under the under the table to somehow um uh like throw his fingers out throw his fingers out to you know to uh bend them a little bit more and to reach further into the piano huh somehow and his, fin- his fingers look weird on the piano i think you know well, yeah they look very super tight yeah. and very uh he's like this you know very you know bent and Uh, his fingers curled way over. This wouldn't be the way you'd want to teach it, I think, so, entirely. He's kind of so, like Ty yeah. Cobb's batting uh, stance. You know, it's worked for Ty Cobb, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but yeah, it's it's strange. I've watched his fingers a lot uh, and tried to figure that out. But it it looks real tense to me, but but it totally works. He's got a gorgeous mm-hmm. sound. So yeah, how do you do it? I mean, you get a beautiful sound. How do you do it? Well, thank you. Uh... What you said about the, I do it actually from the shoulder on, uh, using mm. the whole weight of my arm. And, mm-hmm. uh, but also, I really connect with you and saying, st- staying with the keys all the time. I'm not trying to lift up my fingers in any way. Uh, more, I don't think at all about my fingers. I think more about the notes that I want to play. And then I just try to connect that with as much key contact as possible. And then also uh, releasing my my tensions being relaxed and then using the the whole weight of my arm to translate translate that in, in a way so i guess mm-hmm. it's it's different approaches but it's it's uh it's so cool because in a way after a while how you approach it there's so many ways to that's to get right there, to right? get there right that and there's also so many different sounds i mean listen to right. keith jared's sound which is a beautiful sound and a, like you say the tightness and all that what he does you know to get that sound and then there's monk Yeah. Who's got the better sound? Yeah, I love Monk's sound. Yeah. Such a great sound. It's such a so different than Jarrett's, but 
you know, and then he's got the real flat hands. I don't know how yeah. he plays like this, you know. You know, I mean, I couldn't play for five minutes like that. I don't no. know how, you know, you can make that, you know. Me but neither. <clears throat> it works for him, so. Yeah. What are you going to do, you know? The other thing is keeping your hands super close to the to the to the actual keys, but then I aim for a spot about an inch below the key. It's kind of like, you know, I was really into boxing at one time, and when you punch, you aim in your target, you aim for a spot about 4 inches behind it. Right. And it's, it's it, it it helps to emphasize follow yeah. through and just you really, you know, and it's the same thing with this where you, you know, you kind of aim for a spot and, you know, and then by using your, you know, just pushing down on your finger, you can, you can, and then it also allows you so many levels in between, you know, try to. It's true, yeah. I also try to play through the piano in a way, like right through the keys and the keys make me in a way stop at a certain moment, but I reach below that in a way. That's true. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. And it also allows you, like I say, to get all these kind of levels of it where, you know, which is hard to do. I mean, the hardest thing in piano to do is to play fast and quiet. You know, mm. you know, there's some spots in uh, some of the Prokofiev piano concertos mm. where, I don't know, I have a great recording of Richter playing five, oh, yeah. and there's these cascading lines, and they're super hard, first yeah. of all. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm a terrible reader, and I'm not a great classical player, but, you know, but I'm a great lover of that stuff. And he'll play these descending things and these patterns, and he does it so quietly. Yeah. It's like little shards of glass just, mm. you know, like being sprinkled on the ground, you know. It's, yeah. So great. There's a couple spots in the slow movement of five I'm thinking of, and then also uh, three. I have Gary Grafman playing uh, really great. You know that recording, Gary Grafman playing? No, I don't know it. He plays one and three. Yeah, it's with the Cleveland Orchestra and George Zell, I think it is. I'll and, get it. Uh, and Gary Grafman, it's it's pretty great. It's one of those budget Columbia ones or Sony ones, and um, it's a pretty great recording. Oh, Can you tell me the one. name again, Gary? Grafman, yeah, G-R-A-F-F-M-A-N, Gary Grafman. He was kind of the, I don't know, great American hope of classical piano at that time in the 60s. He came up and was just huge, and he was an insanely great classical player, just amazing. And then he got some terrible problem with his hand, oh, his shit. right hand, and he couldn't play at all. He had to. Oh, no. He started playing works for the left hand, and he started playing, you know, the Ravel, sure. you know, Britain, and some of the stuff that I guess they wrote for what, Paul what, Wittgenstein. What everybody would, you know, do. We we can be thankful that there are so many great works for the left hand, you know, for one hand, yeah. you know. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's had an amazing story about the. He was he was Austrian, wasn't he? The pianist. Uh, those were written for. Uh, yeah, that guy who uh, went into the war. Paul, he, Paul Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, yeah. Austrian guy, and he lost his right arm in the war. Yeah. And it, and he went around. He was rich. His brother was uh, the philosopher. Uh, oh, okay. Didn't know that. The other Wittgenstein. Mm -hmm. The other dude. Anyway, <laughs> the Prokofiev one, he couldn't stand. In fact, he wrote Prokofiev, I think, and says, you know, I've received your concerto and I don't understand a single note of it and I, I won't ever play it. <laughs> Something like that. But at least he was honest about it. He's like, I don't understand a yeah. single note of it. It's like, well, okay. You know, but the Ravel one is uh, it's hard to, that one is so great. Yeah. do 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 and it sounds like it's two hands. Usually, these works well, yeah. sound like I couldn't, I couldn't possibly play that with two hands, you know. Yeah, no, I would be lost if I even attempted it. I can play that little opening, and that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done after that. Yeah. Yeah. How would it look if you would, you know, if you would play on a blank thing? How would it look with your hands? What would your fingers do? 
I don't know. Let me see. Oh, but it's just a tiny movement. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I try not to go too much. It's all like you get the strength from pushing down. I mean, you can't feel, but, you know. Yeah. You can squeeze pretty hard, you know, and get pushed down pretty hard. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get that, you know, and then, and then just barely touch it. And of course, it also depends on, you know, you got to have a piano that's capable of doing it. You know, and that, yeah, right. That's a weird thing, too, you know. I, I suppose we could, you know, talk about that a little bit as a fellow working pianist, you know, like the the pianos you encounter on the road, you know, like, what does that do to your playing? Hmm. You know, the thing is, if I if I give in to uh, you know self doubt and also um, if I give in to uh, negativity taking over, like this piano w- won't suffice at all <laughs> for my oh. abilities. You know, uh, right, right, right. then I'm not. You know, then uh, I have to remind myself to be like inspired by each instrument on its own. Like I can't play the same. And I shouldn't play the same on each exactly. piano. Exactly. Like you wouldn't talk the same to different people. You know, right, different yeah. People are different. You know, yeah. some people you can be more jovial with. Some people are pretty serious. Some people mm-hmm. are kind of goofy. Some people are really warm and you feel immediately kind of, you know, drawn to them that way. And other people are, you know, more distant. And, True. Yeah. And pianos are the same way. Yeah. I used to be a little more, 20, 25 years ago, a little tiny bit more diva-ish about pianos. Uh, you know, frustrated when, you know, because, and then I, I got to a place where I realized, well, first of all, that the diva thing is kind of a drag <laughs> yeah. to be around. Yeah. That sucks. And then, uh, uh, and also, uh, I realized that there's a great opportunity, actually. I, when they're out of tune, that still pisses me off. Okay. I mean, you come on, you know, I mean, you, you fly halfway around the world. I mean, it's a lot of screwing around to, you know, they need to be in tune. Yeah. But as far as like action and, you know, like the tone it produces and, the, you know, I've realized there's a huge opportunity to, yeah. it makes, it makes you play different. And like, there's a piano in Brussels at a place called the Archduke. You ever played there? Today told me about Great that place. place. Yeah. Super fun place to play. It's just mm-hmm. people pack in there and it's little and the piano sits in the middle of the room and you set the drums and people just sit all around the musicians really close. It's like one of those old, which you imagine the old loft sessions were like or something. Everybody's just kind of around and drinking and having fun and it's not super quiet. It's not a, you know, it's not a heavy duty listening room where everyone has to bow to the ghosts of the gods of the legends of the you know that kind of bullshit it's just a fun juke joint you know yeah where people go play and the piano there is an august forster and i used to own one uh a forster years ago and you ever played one of those a forster august forster they're made lobo i'm not sure i I don't think germany no anyways this piano is god lack of a better word slutty (laughs) <laughs> it's just a really it is it's like it's just a piano you just tell lies to all night you know yeah i mean a lot of people would really not like this piano it's funky you know but it's mm. always in tune that's cool you know they tune it they keep it well tuned they do what they can with it and it makes me play totally different i mean it's it's yeah. you know you can't sit in any one spot and you know i don't get to i don't get to have all those nice you know warm ballad moments where it's all just you know where you play less and less until you're hardly playing at all that kind of thing it doesn't do it it's just you can't do that you know what i'm talking about but this piano you can just you just can rip into it and just go crazy with it and and it's really fun to play and it makes me always when i play there i play differently than i do anywhere else and i really love that about it you know and once i started to kind of feel that way about it i then i stopped being so uptight about you know the pianos being you know funky actions and yeah. Even key tops missing, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, whatever. Yeah, it's an opportunity you know. and a challenge at the same time. 
I always love that when I see a great piano player on a bad piano, or I hear, you know, hear a great piano player on a on a recording, like you hear Bill Evans or McCoy sometimes play on Herbie shit. Hancock. Herbie, yeah, yeah play. not even in tune. No, and you don't care. You don't care because you see what they can do with it, and that's right. that's a lesson. That's a lesson. Right. Although as a listener, you do kind of go, wow. They could have tuned the damn thing for a recording session. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. What did yeah. it cost in 1965 to yeah. tune a piano? Five bucks. Ten dollars. You know, <laughs> come on. You're going to pay Herbie ten times that amount to come and play him. Well. That's like buying a, you know, buying a beautiful Porsche and then like quibbling over the 20 bucks it costs to put oil in the motor. It's like so you've got to have oil in the car. Yeah. You know? It's true. It's crazy. But, yeah, there's, I agree. It's just an opportunity to uh, – to to you know to play a different role that's nice i think it's fun mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about your uh, relationship with bill stewart yeah i mean bill and i have been playing a long time together i remember we had a session at my house and i remember uh it actually didn't go that well mm -hmm. uh, the very first time we played together and i think it's just because he was just so far beyond uh you know i just had never really played with somebody who did that i mean that way I mean, mm -hmm. he's extremely advanced, you know, just that it's, you know, the sonically and the way his ideas are organized, it's his thing and it's really great. And so I remember coming away from the session and I thought, God, I suck. <laughs> <laughs> he was a guy that when we played the first session, I was like, okay, this is all going to happen on a different level. <laughs> and mm. you need to figure out what that level is and get there. And then about a year went by and we had another session and it went much better. I, mm -hmm. you know, practiced. I felt better about it and I think we, it just it worked better. And then we, the whole thing with the, the baseless thing was I think we had a session and the bass player didn't show up. Yeah. So we started playing. I was like, wow, this works really nice. You know, it's just harmonically you can move around. You know, I mean, once I got used to kind of covering that territory, because I never really played B3 organ or did... You know, I've never, I never spent a lot of time with the Dave McKenna kind of doing all the walking bass, yeah. which is great, and I love that. You watched much, you checked out much Dave McKenna? Not much, but I, I saw a, a bunch of his stuff and you know listened to a couple of his records. He's yeah, he swings an amazing his ass guy. off. Yeah, Beautiful. and also I think I read this interview with uh, Oscar Peterson where he was asked like, "Who's the next guy?" And he said like, "Dave McKenna is the next guy." He's pretty happening. That's when He's I checked him big, out. Yeah, he's yeah. got that big, beautiful swing feel, and yeah. and uh, you know, and he, he just uh, he flows really nicely. He's a huge guy. For mm -hmm. some reason, before I ever saw him on a video, I thought, I, for some reason, I just thought he was, you know, I like. I guess you figure he's a normal guy, he's, you know, whatever height. This guy's big. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, wow. he's like six five, six. He's big, really big okay. dude. I mean, you could see when he sits under the piano, his knees come right up to the. Yeah, yeah. it's like. But Dave anyway, McKenna has uh, has a big sound, right? He has a huge yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, he's big. He's a roly-poly player, just real big and robust. He doesn't overpower the piano, but he's very firm with the piano and very, you know, uh, it's great, very authoritative. Uh, mm -hmm. I really, I really love his playing. He's got a great thing. But anyway, so just that harmonic freedom, being able to move around like that, is a huge advantage. I mean, for it was really the first time I was able to really start to take some of that classical stuff out for a spin. You know, because then you can really, you can take a standard, you know, I mean, a bass player would just never be able to, there's nothing, it's no, it's no comment on the bass, but it's just a, a fact of that relationship. You can never make it that tight without writing something down. Yeah. You know, you just never be able to be that tight. And so to be able to just move it around on my own was really a eye opener for me. And we had a lot of fun playing in that group. And some of those uh, 
some of the touring and stuff we did with the with the bassist. You know, Abandon All Hope was the name of the group, and <laughs> and uh, it was really fun. I really learned a lot of stuff. And Bill is just, you know, he's. I mean, to me, he's just. He's kind of like, if I was gonna have somebody teach, and I tell my students this: if you want to learn, you know, drums, I tell the drumming students I have and stuff. I take different. I don't just teach piano players. I teach. They come into my room and we just play and we talk about music and you know mm-hmm. it can be any instrument so it's not just pianists um, and some of the drummers like you know Bill's got the he's got like the perfect swing to mm-hmm. me I mean like the way you'd want to teach it yeah you know just the way he touches the instrument the way you know he works at his swing feel he's just he has this amazing ability to know exactly where to be like in basketball they call it court sense you know his ability to know exactly where to be on the court at any given time he just he's amazing in ability to be in the right place at the right time and say the right thing it's mm. it's why he works so much and why everyone loves him yeah. i think as much as any other reason is because he has this wonderful ability to just makes everybody sound better and i mm. think the way that he does that is by being he's out he's just consistently in the right place at the right time at the right moment he has the right thing to say at the right time it's amazing i mean i would love to i would kill to have 10 percent of that ability i just <laughs> you know i'm more insistent i mean the piano's dictatorial anyways the piano is like the last pure dictatorship uh left on earth it is it's like you when you put your hands down on a chord that's it i mean you can argue with it all you want but that is what it is whether it's right or wrong or stupid or yeah perfect or whatever it's you know, so that's why the pianist, I can see why a lot of horn players get away from the piano. It's like, you know, they'd rather just not have it mm-hmm. because it can be very limiting. I mean, even I think with some really great players who know how to do that, you know, it's it's just when you put your hands down, that's what it is. You know, there's yeah. not much wiggle room. Yeah, mm-hmm. so Bill has that great ability to do that and just his feel is so great. And, and, you know, he's also such a great ballad player. Oh, yeah. You know, like the sounds he gets. Mm-hmm. And we did that recording uh uh, ghost ships. Oh it's yeah, one of the, it's one of the. Uh, you play water babies. That we did. You play water babies. I love how you play how you play that song. I love that tune. I've always mm-hmm. loved that one. I've been playing that one for years. It's such a great tune. It's like a little. I love those tunes that are like you know like small and you know just compact and like that. You know, I, I'm thinking of uh, Gary Peacock's tune "Vignette" is another one like that. Just oh, yeah. one of those tunes that's just perfectly. It's like here. This is perfect. <laughs> play that. I mean, seriously, you can play anything over it. Everything just sounds good. It's so malleable, and yet it's, and yet it's got such a great point to it. You know, it's just. How about more, more or more that Gary? Oh yeah. You know. Do 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 That's it. That's the tune. Yeah. And it's perfect. It's four you, bars. You don't need anything more. I, I want to. the shortest tune ever written. Isn't that? Doesn't that have a distinction? It's like the Gettysburg Address of. Uh, of tunes it's like you know yeah. 190 words or whatever it's yeah. like there it is nice and short and perfect I think, yeah i think carla blay is also in that in that realm of you know being able to say something in three bars and or four bars and just kill kill with it and you know you don't need anything else how can you write so little but then you get the urge to play like so so much after that you know? right 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 well monk too oh, know, yeah, monks true. Monk's tunes are all just, you know, little epistles of perfection. They're just all encapsulated. I mean, it, it, the, his stuff is so perfect to me that it's hard to imagine that there was a time when they didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like they were always floating out there and he went, that one and that one and there's that one. But he didn't. He actually sat down and wrote, you know, like figured that out. I mean, you know, 
so perfect and all these tunes are so great there was a time when they didn't exist and it's hard to believe yeah it's true true yeah that simplicity is so great and and mining one idea you know that i could write one thing as cool as i would die a happy man yeah like okay that is great or i was thinking of that one yeah right yeah you know It's so simple, and he just does it over and over and over. But one second, Bill. Can you play that again more slowly? I want to hear that these chords again. Yeah. That's the sound right there. Got to get that, yeah. that crunch in there. If you do it the other way, mm. that's too pretty. Mm -hmm. It's got more to it. Yeah. because it doesn't kind of matter what temp you play in fact the more you lay back on it you know you know the, yeah. the more fun it is to play beautiful also another uh another sure sign of great tunes is that when you can play them like you know a lot of different ways yeah and you know it kind of works in a lot of different ways you know that's a mark of you know I remember playing Donna Lee for years. And yeah, I, I wanted to say that. We, you do that with yeah, a couple we, of tunes, you know? Also that ballad version of, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, that famous Clifford Brown tune that you played. Oh, Joy Spring. Joy Spring. I've been doing it a little bit with this one. These cool, uh, these cool uh, tunes where you know, I mean, they usually swing that one, you know. Sure. Uh, uh, but you know, it can also be done that way, and it works too. And I think that's usually the the case when we learn a tune, uh, or when we try to figure out a tune or something new for a tune. We usually play it very slow so we can hear the next uh, the next thing that we might do, right? Right. And that way we kind of dig how that sounds and then go like maybe we'll try it as a ballad i had sure. a i had a conversation yesterday with peter erskine uh, oh wow uh, talking about uh, i wanted to ask him you know did you learn the tunes for weather report with savinol and, and wayne how mm -hmm. did you learn new material and he was like uh he was talking about Zav how savinol did it and and um jaco having very specific ideas about each you know parameter of the music 
But with Wayne's stuff, there was so much written that every one of those songs started out as a ballad. You know, they played it as a ballad, each one of those. Uh, also, like, uh, I don't know if you know Sightseeing, that tune. They played it as a ballad first, you know. They wanted to get the shit straight, you know, and wanted to sure. to get it right first. But that sparked my imagination, you know, hearing all these, uh, you know, elegant people as a ballad. How would that sound? You know, all these all these Wayne, Wayne tunes. Right, right, it's right. Cool, it's a cool thing. Well, I know that I know that Bill told me years ago, Bill Stewart, that uh, you know he does all a lot of his. I don't know if he talked about this in his interview. I didn't have a chance to watch it yet. I want to, but uh, is that he practices everything really slow, very deliberate. Mm -hmm. You know, like some of the figures when he wants to, you know, like a, you know, a certain shape, and he'll mm -hmm. work it really slowly. You know, and I, I, I took away from that too. I, you know, after when he said that, I was like, yeah, and just practicing stuff really slowly. You know, I mean. Yeah. It, it makes stuff really real for yeah. you. You know, you really can you can really peer into the, you know, into every nook and cranny of a particular thing. Like with Joy Springer, like I've been learning the beginning of the French Suite, uh, the one in B minor. And but just to play it super slow, you know, just and boy, yeah. it's really uh, hard. Yeah, I do the same thing uh, with classical pieces when I try to learn them, like. Playing them as slow as possible, because sure. <laughs> that's that's the only way I'll be able to read them. But also, I want to be able to hear every note before I play it. When I play these kind of tunes, you know, uh, that's what what helps me improve my sight reading. Like being able to sing sure. each note before I'm playing it, so that way I have to reduce the speed. You know, you know, big time. Right. Well, and it keeps you from stopping, you know, because that's the yeah. thing with sight reading. It's it keeps true. you from stopping in the middle, of, you know, especially as a improvising musician, you know, like you keep stopping, and then it, it because you it's not what you were what wasn't right. I I have a huge block with reading at all. I'm shocked that you uh, you say you're not a, a good reader because I I don't know. I just guess I I I don't know what I assumed. I guess is part of your European training that you were, you know <laughs> that you. Uh, uh, Received a firm training in a sight reading. Yeah. But, uh, no. Uh, well, it it got better over the years, but um, I wouldn't say that I'm a, I'm a great reader. You know, first, you know, it's it's different when you put a lead sheet with melody and a chord in front of me. But you know, very. Yeah, I can do that. Okay, too. Yeah. Uh, mostly. Yeah. Because you know, that's what a... we we did for the most time, I think. But um, sure. You get good it, at what you practice. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. But a classical piece, I, you know, I really like uh, listening to classical music and reading the score uh, while listening to it, you know, to see how somebody interprets it and also just being able to see how a rhythm <laughs> sounds like. Sure, I, sure. You know, uh, right, that right. really helps Are you me. talking about piano or are you talking about orchestra too? Do you read like orchestra scores and try to see into those too? Not as much, not as much, but more, uh, more you know, tunes that I'd like to play, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I find it really hard to read orchestra uh, scores with you know all the different. The ways clefs to, are really yeah. tough. Yeah, I yeah. can't really. I mean, I know. can't read a normal clef. So you know, <laughs> give me a cello clef, and you know, now you might as well be you know talking Mandarin Chinese yeah. to me. And I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I did take some of my. I mean, I studied a lot of scores, but I have to take them and 
I have to figure it all. I have to sit and figure it out because yeah. I can't just, you know, a lot of conductors, of course, the great conductors can just look at a score and they can hear it. Yeah. I would go along and just listen to something and then circle certain sections that I liked, you know, like in Ives, Washington's birthday or something. I would circle a section of that and then go figure out what's he doing. You know, how does that, why is that so great? Why yeah. do I love that? Why do I keep coming back to it over and over and over, you know? Yeah. Central Park in the dark, all those, those cool, that, that descending, uh, you know, a fifth thing. Mm-hmm. I had to like check it out at a score because it's just too dense. I can't. Yeah, yeah. It's Once it gets there, so hard, to, hard to just pick it up by ear, uh, you have to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It becomes in, an impenetrable forest of little nuances. You know, the, the way he gets a certain sound like that was, you know, with your second violins and third violins, is so much. You know, this, like I say, it's just trees looking through a dense forest, and you know, can't <laughs> see it after a while. Yeah, like you can only see about ten feet in, and then it's just black. You know, I mm. can't, can't tell. Yeah, yeah. Can we go back to to that story you were about to tell about um, Gary Peacock? He said some interesting things to you. He said, "Yeah, he did. He did in the session. He was kind of a little cryptic, you know. I mean, I was so in awe and completely nervous. The session was set up, and actually, I think Mark Copeland introduced us. You know, said like, hey, you, you know, and kind of made an introduction. And then, I mean, I remember walking to the subway and thinking." You know, that day I was, we did it at uh, the studio in Spring Street. It was a kind of a, it's a, amongst jazz musicians in New York, it was kind of a famous, uh, it was a famous cheaper studio you could go play in, you know, and it also had a, one of the better pianos in the city. That's true, just a yeah. little advertisement for, for your record. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, on sale, <laughs> the next 12 hours, flash sale. Yeah. Uh, so I walk into the sub and I thought, my God, I'm going to the studio to play with Gary Peacock. I mean, mm. seriously, I almost felt I was so nervous and just, you know, like, you know, hi, Mr. Peacock. I'm so happy to meet you. And I, I've been a huge fan of your work. And, you know, and and I, I think I was gushing. I was talking and gushing. And, and Mark was standing there. And I remember I was just going on and on about how great I thought he was and everything. And. And Mark just looks at me. He's like, "Would you stop?" He's like, "You know, <laughs> would you stop?" And then, and then Gary goes, "No, no, no. That's okay. Keep going. This is, <laughs> this is nice." He was like, I, "I'm enjoying this." I was like, "Okay, you know." So. <laughs> Anyways, um, no, he said something interesting when we were trying to do. We did a version of uh, of uh, "Lost in the Stars," mm. and it's very obscure. Uh, I mean, almost to the point where, if I think if you didn't put the title on it. Uh, Maybe it wouldn't. People wouldn't know kind of what it was. Uh, it was you know, kind of a, for me, anyways, a fledgling attempt at you know really just exploding a tune like that out and taking it apart in a you know way that you know where it almost. I mean, I kind of almost killed it. You know, it's just too much. It wasn't you know, it wasn't as concise as I would like now. Anyway, well, anyway, and we got done, and he said, you know, he said, you know. Playing free like that, he said. It, he said it's sometimes the most freeing thing is to have some rules, mm. you know. Because he says then you can operate freely within a within a space. Yeah. But he said if you just like anything, because I think I said something. Well, we just play whatever, you know. And he's like, no. He's like, you know, it's good to have like some parameters because he said then you can be totally free within the parameters. And I never really thought of it that way. And that was really the kind of the beginning of of the idea of you know that of for me of really loving the free playing that still stays concise and stays, you know, that point. We don't get too so far away where it's about everything and it's about nothing and mm-hmm. all at the same time. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, 
like answering a, a question with such a vague answer like that, you know, mm. what is life? Well, life is just life, man. You know, <laughs> you're not really saying anything, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like, it's everything and it's nothing. So, mm. uh, I really liked his point about that. I never really thought of it that way that, you know, sometimes rules can be freeing. Yeah. You know, I found that out as a parent, I can tell you, you know, if you, <laughs> if you give kids firm boundaries, they can actually, they're free to be themselves inside that boundary, you know? Mm -hmm. If they stay within that boundary, they can actually be more free mm. than they would if you just said, well, whatever you want. I don't care. Go do whatever you want. You know? Yeah, true. Uh, you know, anyways, I took that away from that session. I read that you worked with uh, Billy Higgins. I want to ask you how that I, felt. That was so great. That was the first time I ever played. I was, that's the first drummer that I played with where I was like, wow, I was 19. And I thought, oh, that's what's possible. That's what that's supposed to feel like. Just so much joy, first of all. The guy had a smile on his face. I mean, he was playing with, you know, three local musicians from Minneapolis, you know, I mean, back in those days, a guy would come and just pick up musicians from town and he didn't bring his whole group, you know? Yeah. So, uh, and I did a lot of those gigs like that. Uh, that's mm -hmm. when I played with, I played with Charlie Rouse for four nights and I played with James Moody and all these guys, you know, and they would just show up in town and they would put together a rhythm section. I mean, the, the club would, they'd say, you know, you're on this one and you're not on this one. And they would try to kind of feel out who they thought would be the best kind of mix for, you know, what was being played, you know, that the guys playing or everything, or who was available to, mm -hmm. who had the, you know, and they would have these guys come into the artist court and play four nights. He'd play uh, Thursday through Sunday. And uh, I was 18, 19 years old. I was, it was great training, just being thrown to the wolves by those guys. I mean, I got my ass kicked every single night. Oh, just, man. Yeah, it was great, though. And Billy Higgins was one of them. And anyways, he just, the joy... You know, and he just, he had that, just that joyous thing, the way he played, the way he acted, he was such a gentleman, he was just, and you know, and, and, you know, they weren't all, in, all the guys I played with were not all entirely like that, you know, mm -hmm. some of them were like, you know, I'm on the road and I'm playing, you know, with the local guys, and I mean, they, you know, they, there was only one guy who was kind of actually dickish about it, so. I won't mention any names, but other than that, everyone else was pretty cool, but Billy was particularly just like, Just like you could just feel every night was just this chance to do this thing. And he didn't care that it was with local guys and he didn't care that it was. He just was just the joy of making music with other people. Mm -hmm. It was that was inspiring to me. Uh, this guy was just so filled with joy. He just God, it was great. It was great to be around. Yeah, I, I remember I had a cassette of uh, a night with Buddy DeFranco. Mm hmm. That we played together. I played quite a bit with him afterwards. He actually when I moved to New York, we played some gigs together with Buddy. Mm -hmm. He was super gentleman too. You listen to much Buddy DeFranco? No, no. Well, there's one you have to get. It's okay. the one that he made. It's the one he made with Art Tatum. Okay. Uh, it's unbelievable. Oh my God. It's yeah, Buddy DeFranco and Art Tatum. They actually do this great tune on there that you'll love. Uh, So Deep Night is one of the tunes they do on there, and it's just killing, man. Do you uh, have the other one? You know, the one with uh, Lionel Hampton and Buddy Rich. Have you no, heard that? No. Oh, my God. Great, man. That's that's going to be a Desert Island disc for you, pretty okay. sure. Art Tatum's playing on that, and his version of They Do Make and Whoopi, it's insane. I've yeah. never heard Even for Art Tatum, it's just insane. Harmonically, too, it's right near the end of his life. I think it was done in, like, 50... 
55. Didn't he die like in 56, 55 or 6? I think he died so, shortly yeah. thereafter. Yeah. Anyways, harmonically, he's moving, you know, because there's no bass player on this session. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's piano and vibes and drums. And, and he moves it around harmonically. It's unbelievable. Oh, great, man. I Seriously. only focused on his solo recordings until now. You know, yeah. So uh, that's uh, I'll check that out. Great. Yeah, they're really great recordings. Mm -hmm. Fingers up. But I'm not a heavy practicer, and I don't have like goals set for myself down the road. I want to be able to do this in two years or five. I've I've I'm constantly kind of trying to make one. I mean, I guess I do have a few goals. I'm trying to make my stride playing better all the time. It's something mm -hmm. that I'm terrible at, and I love. Mm. And I and actually to the extent that I've been learning a little ragtime too, just wow. a tiny bit. I've been trying to. It's fun, man. It's a different feel, you know. It's more straight up and down. It's like the, it's like, it's like the very sm small child of 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 of, uh, of stride, you know. Mm -hmm. Because where the stride swings, the ragtime really shouldn't. It's not supposed mm -hmm. to be, you know. It's straight up and down, more like a like one of those, like a calliope, you know. You know, it doesn't go boop a doo you know. Yeah. So I've been doing a little bit of that, but. But no, I don't. I just kind of. I mean, I think I hope that my playing does evolve. Sure. I couldn't really tell you how or in what ways, but I don't think about it too much. I just listen to the things I like to listen to, which has been Bach is kind of the permanent axis on which musically my life revolves. I would say Bach, the mid '60s miles to the early '60s, the mid '60s Coltrane stuff. Uh, I don't think anybody nowadays is able to do that. What Miles did, you know. Throughout, throughout all of his life, or, or Wayne, you know, you're not gonna. I, I don't see a lot of people like that. You know, they're they're the giants of this music, who have that um, continuing search throughout right. their whole life. You know, without sacrificing. I don't know. It's yeah, it's rare. It's rare. It's a thing very few people get to. Yeah, and, you know, it's like a couple times in a century. There's a few. You know, there's a few guys yeah and it's just like they you know they and i'm not even talking about the ones that change the music irrevocably but just have that such a deep spiritual connection to you know that's just instantly transmittable you can, you can tell they're playing immediately you can just hear it's like that's wayne you know it's just yeah. there's no you know that kind of stuff it's just that doesn't happen very often you're right it's it's pretty rare yeah but anyway those are the guys that's you know it's definitely a couple of the things that i listen to a lot And of course, Ives. I'm a huge Ives of file, and uh, he's another kind of permanent, you know, like in the classical world, Bach and Ives. I would say, you know, there's a mm. bunch of guys in between that I really love, but but those two kind of extremes, I guess, uh, yeah, uh, are are kind of two things that Ives has just always spoken to me. I don't know why. Just every time I put Ives on, it's like it feels like going home. Yeah, I think everybody has has uh, some connection of that to another composer. I think Mompo is mine. Yeah, Every yeah. time I hear that, I, I feel like I feel like home. Also, yeah. partially because when I was a little boy, I listened to my father and my mother played that on the piano, so that actually go. feels like home. But also harmonically, uh, I'm drawn to these sounds, uh, and and they um, they're my companion. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that childhood stuff, like you say too, is so you know, is so powerful and important. I mean, you know that certain sounds certain smells even you know mm -hmm. they, they say if you want to sell your house bake bread mm -hmm. before people come to view your house bake bread okay bake what? some bread because people come into a home it smells like freshly baked bread it just feels like home it just feels <laughs> you know it is it's like it's a you just come in the house like ah it smells like 
bread being mm. baked, you know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know? I'll so probably music has the same, uh, yeah, right? If you ever want to sell your place. Um, what does it tell you about music then? So what would you, if you want to sell your record? What yeah. <laughs> What's my bread? Yeah. I have no idea. That's a great question. That's a great question. I have no idea. I don't know. Well, yeah, well, that gets into now you're starting to go down the, the music business uh, no, we won't go there. rabbit hole. No, no, that's okay. It's just I know nothing about it. I seek to know nothing. I'm terrible at it. I hate money. Hmm. I mean, I need it, and <laughs> I like it for that reason, but I don't, you know, if I could barter the rest of my life, just I'll play you a gig, and then you can work on my, you know, boiler or something. Hmm. I, you know, whatever, just if I can, you know, if we could all do that and no money ever exchange hands, that, that would, would be, be my great, number huh? one. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah. yeah. Just trading you know mm -hmm. yeah that would be sweet